Chapter 7, Part 1 of More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. Chapter 7 Part 1 The Struggle with Ill Health, 1861-1865 to At home again in New York The Church of the Covenant Increasing Ill Health The Summer of 1861 Death of Louisa Payson Hopkins Extracts from her journal Summer of 1862 Letters Despondency we come now to a new phase of Mrs. Prentice's experience as a pastor's wife. Before her husband resigned his New York charge during the winter of 1857-58, the question of holding a service in the upper part of the city with the view to another congregation was earnestly discussed in the session and among the leading members of the church, but nothing then came of it. Soon after his return from Europe, however, the project was revived and resulted at length in the formation of the Church of the Covenant. In consequence of the great civil war, which was then raging, the undertaking encountered difficulties so formidable that nothing but extraordinary zeal, liberality and wise counsel on the part of his friends and the friends of the movement could overcome them. For two or three years, the new congregation held service in what was then called Dodsworth Studio Building at the corner of 5th Avenue and 26th Street. But in 1864, it entered the chapel on 35th Street and in 1865, occupied the stately edifice on Park Avenue. In the manifold labours, trials and discouragements connected with this work, Mrs. Prentice shared with her husband and, when finally crowned with the happiest success, it owed perhaps as much to her as to him. This brief statement seems needful in order to define and render clear her position as a pastor's wife during the next twelve years. After spending some weeks in Newark and Portland, she found herself once more in New York, in a home of her own, and surrounded by friends, both old and new. The records of the following four or five years are somewhat meagre, and furnish few incidents of special significance. The war, with its terrible excitement and anxieties, absorbed all minds and left little spare time for thought or feeling about anything else. Domestic and personal interests were entirely overshadowed by the one supreme interest of the hour, that of the imperiled national life. It was for Mrs. Prentice a period also of almost continuous ill health, the sleeplessness from which she had already suffered so much assumed more and more a chronic character, and, aggravated by other ailments and by the frequent illness of her younger children, so undermined her strength that life became at times a heavy burden. She felt often that her days of usefulness were past, but the master had yet a great work for her to do, and, in ways various, or might I say contrarious, 
he was training her for it during these years of bodily infirmity and suffering. The summer of 1861 was passed at Newport. In a letter to Mrs. Smith, dated July the 28th, she writes, We find the Cliff House delightful, within a few minutes' walk of the sea, which we have in full view from one of our windows, and we have no lack of society, for the Bancrofts, Miss Aspinwall and her sister, as well as the Skinners, are very friendly. But I am so careworn and out of sorts that this beautiful ocean gives me little comfort. I seem to be all the time toting one child or another about, or giving somebody paragoric or rhubarb, or putting somebody to sleep, or scolding somebody for waking up papa, who is miserable, and his oration untouched. There, don't mind me, it's at the end of a churchless Sunday, and I dare say I'm only peevish, as the little boy said. But in a few weeks, the children were well again, and her own health so much improved, that she was able to indulge in surf bathing, which she enjoyed tremendously, and early in the fall the whole family returned to town greatly refreshed by the summer's rest. On the 24th of January, 1862, her sister, Mrs. Hopkins, died. This event touched her deeply. She hurried off to Williamstown, whence she wrote to her husband, who was unable to accompany her. If you had known that I should not get here till half-past nine last night, and that in an open sleigh from North Adams, you would not have let me come. But so far I am none the worse for it. And when I came in and found the professor and T and Eddie sitting here all alone and so forlorn in their unaccustomed leisure, I could not be thankful enough that a kind providence had allowed me to come. It is a very great gratification to them all, especially to the professor, and even more so than I had anticipated. In view of the danger of being blocked up by another snowstorm, I should probably think it best to return by another route, which they all say is the best. I hope you and my precious children keep well. No picture of Mrs. Prentice's life would be complete, in which her sister's influence was not distinctly visible. To this influence she owed the best part of her earlier intellectual training, and it did much to mould her whole character. Mrs. Hopkins was one of the most learned as well as most gifted women of her day and had not ill health early disabled her for literary labours, she might, perhaps, have won for herself an enduring name in the literature of the country. There were striking points of resemblance between her and Sarah Coleridge, the same early intellectual bloom, the same rare union of feminine delicacy and sensibility with masculine strength and breadth of understanding the same taste for the beautiful in poetry, in art, and in nature, joined to similar fondness for metaphysical studies, the same delight in books of devotion and in books of theology, and the same varied erudition. Only one of them seems to have been an accomplished Hebraist, but both were good Latin and Greek scholars, and both were familiar with Italian, Spanish, French, and German. Even in Sarah Coleridge's admiration and reverence for her father, Mrs. Hopkins was in full sympathy with her. 
she lacked indeed that poetic fancy which belonged to the author of phantasmion nor did she possess her mental self-poise and firmness of will but in other respects even in physical organization and certain features of countenance they were singularly alike and they both died in the fiftieth year of their age louisa payson was born at portland february the twenty fourth eighteen twelve even as a child she was the object of tender interest to her father on account of her remarkable intellectual promise he took the utmost pains to aid and encourage her in learning to study and to think the impression he made upon her may be seen in the popular little volume entitled the pastor's daughter which consists largely of conversations with him written out from memory after his death she was then in her sixteenth year the records of the next eight years which were mostly spent in teaching are very meagre but a sort of literary journal kept by her between eighteen thirty five and eighteen forty shows something of her mental quality and character as also of her course of reading she was twenty-three years old when the journal opens here are a few extracts from it boston november the eighteenth eighteen thirty five last evening i passed in company with mr dana i conversed with him only for a few moments about mr alcott's school and had not time to ask one of the ten thousand questions i wished to ask i have been trying to analyse the feeling i have for men of genius coleridge wordsworth and dana for example i can understand why i feel for them unbounded admiration reverence and affection but i hardly know why there should be so much excitement painful excitement mingled with these emotions next to possessing genius myself would be the pleasure of living with one who possessed it november the nineteenth i have read to-day one canto of dante's inferno and eight or ten pages of cicero de amicitia in this as well as in de senec tute which i have just finished i am much interested i confess i am not a little surprised to find how largely the moderns are indebted to the ancients how many wise observations on life and death the soul time eternity etc have been repeated by the sages of every generation since the days of cicero january the fourteenth eighteen thirty six i spent last evening with mr dana and the conversation was of course of great interest we talked of some of the leading reviews of the day and then of the character of our literature as connected with our political institutions this led to a long discussion of the latter subject but as the same views are expressed in mr d s article on law i shall pass it over i differed from him in regard to the french comedies especially those of moliere however he allowed that they contain genuine humour but they are confined to the exhibition of one ridiculous point in the character instead of giving us the whole man as shakespeare does september the twenty-second this morning i have had one of the periods of insight when the highest spiritual truths pertaining to the divine and human natures become their own light and evidence as well as the evidence of other truths no speculations no ridicule can shake my faith in that which i thus see and feel
I was particularly interested in thinking of the regeneration of the spirit and the part which faith, hope and love have in effecting it. Sabbath, 23rd. It seems to me that this truth alone, there is a God, is sufficient, rightly believed, to make every human being absolutely and perfectly happy. January the 14th, 1839. Wednesday evening attended Mr. Emerson's lecture on genius, of which I shall attempt to say nothing except that it was most delightful. Thursday morning Mr. Emerson called to see me and gave me a ticket for his course. Afterwards Mr. Darner called. It seemed to me that I have lived backwards. In other words, the faculties of my mind, which were earliest developed, were those which in other minds come last, reflection and solidity of judgment, while fancy and imagination, in so far as I have any at all, have followed. Saturday, January the 26th. My occupations in the way of books at present consist in reading Antigone, Guizot's History, Lockhart's Scott, and Sundry's. I am also translating large extracts from Claudius, with a view to writing an article about him, if the fates shall so will it. Thursday, January the 1st. Mr. Emerson's lecture last night was on comedy. He professed to enter on the subject with reluctance, as conscious of a deficiency in the organ of the ludicrous, a profession, however, that was not substantiated very well by the lecture itself which convulsed the audience with laughter. He spoke in the commencement of the silent history, written in the faces of an assembly, making them as interesting to a spectator as if their lives were written in their features. 25th. I began yesterday Schleiermacher's Christlicher Glaube, a profound, learned and difficult work, I am told. Geoffroy's Philosophical Writings, Landor's Pericles and Aspasia, and the Gurney Papers. Considering that I was already in the midst of several books, this is rather too much, but I could not help it. The books were lent me, and must be read and returned speedily. I have been all the morning employed in writing an abstract of the Report of the Prison Discipline Society, and am wearied and stupefied. January the 7th, 1840 went to Mr. Ripley's where I met Dr. Channing and listened to a discussion of Spinoza's religious opinions. This afternoon Mr. D. came again, talked about the Trinity and other theological points. This evening heard Professor Silliman. I have nearly finished Fichte and like him on the whole exceedingly, though I think he errs in placing the roots of the speculative in the practical reason. It seems to me that neither grows out of the other, but that they are coincident spheres. Still, there is a truth, a great truth, in what he says. It is true that action is often the most effectual remedy against speculative doubts and perplexities. When you are in the dark about this or that point, ask what command does conscience impose upon me at this moment. Obey it, and you will find light. These extracts will suffice to show the quality and extent of her reading. What sort of fruit her reading and study bore may be seen by her articles on Claudius and Goethe in the New York Review. 
no abler discussion of the genius and writings of goethe had at that time appeared in this country while the article on claudius was probably the first to make him known to american readers during many of the later years of her life mrs hopkins was a martyr to ill health the story of her sufferings both physical and mental are artlessly told in little diaries which she kept is wondrously pitiful no pen of fiction could equal its simple pathos again and again as she herself knew she was on the very verge of insanity nothing probably saving her from it but the devotion of her husband who with untiring patience and a mother's tenderness ministered in season and out of season to her relief often would he steal home from his beloved observatory where he had been teaching his students how to watch the stars and pass a sleepless night at her bedside reading to her and by all sorts of gentle appliances trying to soothe her irritated nerves and this devotion ran on without variableness or shadow of turning year after year giving itself no rest until her eyes were closed in death let us now resume our narrative a portion of the summer of eighteen sixty two was passed by mrs prentice at newport her season of rest was again invaded by severe illness among her children under date of august the third she writes to mrs smith i can see that our landlady who has good sense and experience thinks g will not get well sometimes in awful moments i think so too but then i cheer up and get quite elated last night as i lay awake too weary to sleep i heard a harsh rasping sound like a large saw i thought some animal unknown to me must be making it it was so regular and frequent but after a time i found it was a dying young soldier who lives farther from this house than miss h does from our house in new york his fearful cough oh this war this war i never hated and revolted against it as i did then i had heard someone say such a young man lay dying of consumption in this street but till then was too absorbed with my own incessant cares to hear the cough as the rest had done i never realized how i felt about our country till i found the terror of losing a link out of that little golden chain that encircles my sweetest joys was a kindred suffering have the times ever looked so black as they do now we seem to be drifting round without chart or pilot two weeks later august the seventeenth she writes to her cousin miss shipman g is really up and about looking thin and white and feeling hungry and weak but little h has been sick with the same disease this ten days past i got your letter and the little cat for which g and i thank you very much I should think it would about kill you to cook all day, even for our soldiers, but on the whole cannot blame anyone who wants to get killed in their service. I am impressed more and more with their claims upon us, who confront every danger and undergo every suffering, while we sit at home at our ease. However, the ease I have enjoyed during the last five weeks has not been of a very luxurious kind, and I have felt almost discouraged as day after day of confinement and night after night of sleeplessness has pulled down my strength but what am i doing 
complaining instead of rejoicing that I am not left unchastised. After a careworn summer at Newport, she went with the children to Williamstown, where a month was passed with her brother-in-law, Professor Hopkins. The following letters relate to this visit. To her husband, Williamstown, September the 19th, 1862. I am glad to find that you place reliance on the reports of our late victory, for I have been in great suspense, seeing only the world, which was throwing up its hat and declaring the war virtually ended. I have no faith in such premature assertions, of which we have had so many, but was most anxious to know your opinion. Do not fail to keep me informed of what is going on. The children are all out of doors and enjoying themselves. The professor has gone on horseback to see about his buckwheat. He took me up there yesterday afternoon, and I crawled through forty fences, more or less, and got a vast amount of exercise, which did not result in any better sleep, however, than no exercise does. Cairo H. read me yesterday a most interesting letter from her brother Henry, describing the scene at Bull Run, when he went there five days after the battle. It was very painful to find such mismanagement as he deplores. He gave a most touching account of a young fellow who lay mortally wounded, where he had lain uncared for with his companions the five days, and whom they were obliged to decline removing, as they only had room for a portion of the hopeful cases. After beseeching Mr. H. to see that he was removed, and entreating to know when and how he was ever to get home if they left him, he was told that it was not possible to make room for him in this train of ambulances. As Mr. H. tore himself away, he heard him say, Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. The torture of the wounded men in the ambulances was so frightful that Mr. H. gave each of them morphine enough to kill three well men. They cried for it like dogs, and licked my hands, lest they should lose a drop, he adds. As a contrast to this letter, some of the new recruits came into the professor's grounds yesterday to get bouquets, and thought if their folks had a yard so gaily decked with flowers, they would feel set up. To Mrs. Smith, Williamstown, September the 25th, 1862. I have been feeling languid or lazy ever since I came here, and for a few days past have been miserable, but I am better today. This place is perfectly lovely and grows upon me every day. But the professor is entirely absorbed in his loss. He does not know it, or else thinks he does not show it, for he makes no complaint, but it is in every tone and word and look. It is plain that Louisa's ill health, which might have weaned a selfish man from her, only endeared her to him. She was so entirely his object day and night that he misses her and the care of her, as a mother does her sick child. If we ride out, he says, Here I often came with her. If a bird sings, That is a note she used to love. If we see a flower, That is one of the flowers she loved. He has an astonishing amount of journal manuscripts, and I think may in time prepare something from them. Isn't it frightful how cotton goods have run up? I gave twenty cents for a yard of Cilicia. Is that the way to spell it? And suppose everything else has rushed up too. 
I hope you are prepared to tell me exactly what to buy and instruct me in the way I should go. To her husband, Williamstown, September the 26th. I spent yesterday forenoon looking over Louisa's papers and found an enormous mass of manuscript, journals, extract books, translations, and work enough planned and begun for many lifetimes. It was very depressing. One's only refuge is faith in God, and in the certainty that her lingering illness was more acceptable to him than years of active usefulness, and such extraordinary usefulness, even as she was so fitted for. I read over some of my own letters written many, many years ago, and the sense this gave me of lost youth and vivacity and energy was, for a time, most painful. I have felt for a long while greatly discouraged and depressed, yes, weary of my life, because it seems to me that broken down and worn out as I am, and full of faults under which I groan, being burdened, I could not make you happy. But your last letter comforted me a good deal. I see little for us to do but what you suggest, to cheer each other up and wear out rather than rust out. It is more and more clear to me that patience is our chief duty on earth and that we cannot rest here. I am anxious to know what you think of the President's proclamation. The Professor likes it. He seems able to think of little but his loss. Even when speaking in the most cheerful way, tears fill his eyes, and the other day, putting a letter into my hands to read, he had to run out of the room. The letter stated that fifty young persons owed their conversion to Louise's books. It was written some years ago. His mother spent Saturday here. She is bright and cheerful and full of sly humour. He did everything to amuse her, and she enjoyed her visit amazingly. I long to see you. Letters are more and more unsatisfactory, delusive things. M is going to have a party this afternoon and is going to one this forenoon. The others are bright and busy as bees. Goodbye. A tinge of sadness is perceptible in most of her letters during this year. Her sister's death, the fearful state of the country, protracted sickness among her children and her own frequent ill turns and increasing sense of feebleness all conspired to produce this effect. But in truth, her heart was still as young as ever, and a touch of sympathy or an appeal to her love of nature instantly made it manifest. An extract from a letter to Miss Anna Warner, dated New York, December the 16th, may serve as an instance. I wanted to write a book when the trunk came this afternoon. That is, a book full of thanks and exclamation marks. You could not have bought with money anything for my Christmas present that could give half the pleasure. I shut myself up in my little room upstairs. I declare I don't believe you saw that room, did you? And there I spread out my mosses and my twigs and my cones and my leaves and admired them till I had to go out and walk to compose myself. Then the children came home and they all admired too, and among us we upset my big work basket and my little work basket, and didn't any of us care. My only fear is that with all you had to do, you did too much for me. Those little red moss cups are too lovely, and as to all those leaves, 
how I shall leaf out. G asked me who sent me all those beautiful things. Miss Warner, quoth I absently. Didn't Miss Anna send any of them? he exclaimed. So you see you twain do not pass as one flesh here. I have read all the books of blessing, save Gertrude and her cat, but though I like them all very much, my favourite is still The Prince in Disguise. If you come across a little book called Ernest, published by Randolph, do read it. It is one of the few real books and ought to do good. I have outdone myself in picture frames since you left. I got a pair of nippers and some wire, which are of great use in the operation. I am now busy on Mr. Ball for Mr. Prentice's study. To one of her sister-in-laws she wrote, under the same date, I do not know as I ever was so discouraged about my health as I have been this fall. Sometimes I think my constitution is quite broken down and that I never shall be good for anything again. However, I do not worry one way or the other, but try to be as patient as I can. I have been a good deal better for some days, and if you could see our house, you would not believe a word about my not being well, and would know my saying so was all a sham. To tell the truth, it does look like a garden, and when I am sick I like to lie and look at what I did when I wasn't. My wreaths and my crosses and my vines and my toadstools and other fixings. Yesterday I made a bonnet of which I am justly proud. Tomorrow I expect to go into mosses and twigs, of which Miss Anna Warner has just sent me a lot. She and her sister were here about a fortnight. They grow good so fast that there is no keeping track of them. Does anybody in Portland take their paper? The children are all looking forward to Christmas with great glee. It is a mercy that there are any children to keep up one's spirits in these times. Was there ever anything so dreadful as the way in which our army has just been driven back? But if we had had a brilliant victory, perhaps the people would have clamoured against the Emancipation Project, and anything is better than the perpetuation of slavery. Our congregation is fuller than ever, but there is no chance of building even a chapel. Shopping is pleasant business nowadays, isn't it? We shall have to stop sewing and use pins. End of chapter 7, part 1